Well, for several decades, Richard Griffin served as the bodyguard for Queen Elizabeth II. And she, his name was Richard, but she often referred to him as Dickie. And for several decades, he served as her bodyguard. And uh, while the queen is alive, was alive, some of you may know this, uh, she was very, very fond of going on picnics. Well, once when the queen and Dickie were on a picnic in Scotland, they ran into some American tourists. However, once the queen greeted the American tourists, it became very clear that they did not recognize who she was. In fact, because they didn't recognize who she was, they began engaging in some small talk. And during the conversation, one of the American tourists, they looked at her and said, so tell me, um, where do you live? Well, the queen said, uh, I live in London, but I have a holiday home here on the other side of these hills. Oh, replied the tourist. So, so how long have you been visiting this area? And the queen said, well, golly, uh, ever since I was a little girl, so about 80 years now. 80 years, the American tourist said. Well, if you've been coming up for 80 years, then you must have met the queen. <laughs> and without missing a beat, the queen replied, well, I haven't, but Dickie here, he meets with her regularly. No way, the American tourist explained. He then asked Dickie, so, so tell me, tell me, what's the queen like? And Dickie, having a sense of humor himself, he said, well, she can be very cantankerous at times, but she's got a lovely sense of humor. Tourist was amazed that he met someone who met the queen. Do you know what he did next? He put his arm around Dickie, gave his camera to the queen, and said, would you take our picture? <laughs> to which she did. And then, and then, you know, then it's so as to be polite. He's like, well, okay, well, he gave Dickie the, the camera and said, well, I'll get a picture with her too. Again, not knowing who she was. And once the tourists were out of earshot, the queen turned to Dickie and said, I'd love to be a fly on the wall when he shows those photographs to friends in America. <laughs> and then she said this. She said, hopefully someone will tell him who I am. This Christmas morning, we're going to be studying a well-known Christmas text, and that's Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. But I need to let you know that there's a danger in reading a passage like this. Because you see, faith, it is quite possible for us to read this familiar text and like that American tourist, miss the royalty that is right in front of us. You see, this passage articulates what is arguably the most central and glorious truth of Christmas. And it's a truth I don't want us to miss this Christmas morning. And what is that truth? Well, if you haven't already, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. That's page 807 in that white paperback Bible in the seat in front of you. And I invite you to follow along with me as I read Matthew chapter 2, 
verses 1 through 12. Matthew writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly to ascertain from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, They saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And all God's people said, Amen, Amen. This is God's good word. Uh, This past October, the public park service issued this warning. Stop licking the toads. Yes, you read this correctly. Sorry, enchanted princes who have been cursed. Apparently, the Colorado River toad secretes a white, milky substance which scientists say can act as a hallucinogenic. This prompted a series of celebrities who have talked about ingesting the substance as a way of inducing a psychedelic trip. And through exaggeration and repetition, the idea has morphed into the possibility that someone could get high simply by licking one of these toads. And many have started doing exactly that. So the park issued this warning. Stop licking the toads. Stating, they secrete a potent toxin that can make you terribly sick. Friend, you know what this story is? It is one of the many countless pieces of evidence that prove that humanity cannot govern itself. Amen? Amen. 
I mean, and I don't mean to hurt your feelings, but even if licking toads isn't your thing, the truth is, you and me, we are incapable of successfully ruling our own lives. And look, if we're honest with ourselves, we intuitively know this to be the case. It doesn't take us very long to look at our past, into our past, and stare at our failures, our poor choices, and decisions to realize, you know what? We aren't that great at being the king of our own lives. You see, you know what you need? You know what I need? We need a king. And what this text and the rest of Scripture boldly claims is that Jesus is that king. Jesus is the king you need. And Faith Community Church, this, I want to argue, is the main idea of this text and one of the most glorious truths of Christmas. Jesus is the king you need. Notice how this is made clear in verse 4. After the Magi ask, where is the king of the Jews? Observe what Herod does. He gathers all the chief priests and scribes, and what does he ask them? He does not ask them where the king of the Jews was to be born, does he? No, he asked something different. Notice, he asked where the Messiah was to be born. They come in, where's the king of the Jews? He wants everybody to know, where is the Messiah to be born? And this is significant. Because you see, as historians tell us, Herod had been called king of the Jews by the Senate in Rome for almost 40 years. But no one called him Messiah. Messiah means the long-awaited, God-appointed ruler who would overcome all other rules and bring about the end of history and establish the kingdom of God and never die or lose his reign. In other words, the king that the Magi are searching for is the final king to end all kings. And Herod knew that the moment the Magi asked, where is the king of the Jews? And friend, without any confusion, the Bible announces that Jesus is that king. He is the long-awaited king that humanity needs, and that includes you and me. Jesus is the Lord we need to submit to. You see, faith, if, if Matthew chapter 2 is true, if Jesus Christ was born into this world in order to save humanity through his sinless life, his sacrificial death, and his victorious resurrection from the dead, then we ought to celebrate his birth. Indeed, if Jesus is who he claims to be, then away with Ramadan, with Kwanzaa, or any other celebration that cannot bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. As author and pastor Doug Wilson so poignantly state, stated, he says, and so for us, there is not a genus called something like a holiday season, with our Christmas taking its place as just one example of that kind of thing. He goes on to say, 
we are not allowed to place Christ alongside the idols at any time in the year. And if we were to do so at this time of year, we would be plainly contradicting the combined testimonies of the angels, the shepherds, Mary and Joseph, the wise men, and, in his own troubled way, Herod. If Jesus is the king, then that means others are not. That American tourist was standing in the presence of royalty and didn't even know it. And do you remember what the queen said after he left? She said, I hope someone tells him who I am. Friend, this passage is telling you who Jesus is. And he is the king you need in your life and in my life. So what I want to do this morning is explore what it means that Jesus is king and how that reality should impact our lives today. For in this passage, we learn three important aspects about the kingship of Jesus. And the first is this. I want you to notice that the kingship of Jesus, it disturbs our hearts. Notice the response of Herod and the city of Jerusalem there in verse 3. So the Magi come to ask, where is the king of the Jews? And then in verse 3 we read this. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. The kingship of Jesus, it disturbs our hearts. A favorite Christmas movie in our home is Elf. Anyone else, you guys familiar with this movie, Elf? I hope so. One of the more well-known scenes is when the main character, Buddy the Elf, he calls out the mall Santa for not being the real Santa Claus. Do you remember this, this scene, right? In fact, things get so heated between the two that they actually get into a major brawl. And I don't know if you remember this, but, but right before they start to punch each other and fight, Buddy the Elf, he goes right up to the mall Santa. He looks at him square in the eyes and he whispers, you sit on a throne of lies. Do you remember this? <laughs> that mall Santa wasn't the real Santa. And you know what? And he knew it. Well, in many ways, that's how Herod felt when the Magi asked him, where is the king? That question made Herod feel much like that mall Santa, and that is threatened. You see, when someone walks into a palace and asks, where is the king? That's going to upset the person who's actually sitting on the throne. Yet notice, the text says that it wasn't simply Herod who was upset by this question. No, verse 3 says that the king was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. You know why? Because although that question was originally given to Herod in his palace, that question also reaches into the palaces of our hearts. And like Herod, it disturbs us because we want to be 
the king of our own lives. You see, the message of Christmas is making a bold claim. The Christmas message declares that we all are sitting on a throne of life because Jesus is the one true king. And as the sovereign king of the universe, he demands that we submit and follow him. I mean, indeed, if you just just have a cursory reading of the Gospels and Jesus' teaching, it will become very evident to you, friend, that Jesus demands an allegiance to him that is so supreme, it makes all other commitments look weak by comparison. It is a claim of absolute authority. And you know how that claim makes one feel? Disturbed. I want to suggest that Herod's reaction is a picture of us all. In his book, The Hidden Meaning of Christmas, Tim Keller writes this. He says, at the core of the human heart is an impulse that says, no one tells me what to do. Culture and training can go a long way towards teaching us to hide that deep instinct, even from ourselves. However, no amount of education or therapy can remove it. This, I think, is what the Apostle Paul is getting at in Romans 8, 7 through 8, when he says that the human condition, the human mind in its natural state is at enmity and hostile towards God. Right? We, we come to this world by ourselves. We do not submit to God's law or rule, nor can we. What I'm trying to say is this, friend. In every human heart, there is a little King Herod that wants to be king and is threatened by anything that might compromise its rule and reign. And this just isn't the case for the natural man. The truth is, even the redeemed can find this claim disturbing at times. Why? Because even though Jesus Christ, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, we're saved from the power of sin and the penalty of sin, Scripture teaches that until we're with the Lord in glory, we still have to fight daily the presence of indwelling sin. Christians still have indwelling sin that needs to be put to death by the power and help of the Spirit. Because, friend, what I want to say is sin at its core, really sin at its core, it wants to overthrow God's rule as king. I mean, Christian, why do you find it so hard at times to read your Bible? Why do you find it so hard at times to set aside time to pray? Why do you find it so hard at times to obey God's commands, like to forgive those who sin against you, to not be bitter, to not be angry? Why do we find it so hard at times to obey God's command, to be patient and kind? Is it not because the sin in us, indwelling sin, it says, no, 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 we're not going to submit to that king's rule. We're going to submit to what we want. Sin wants you to be the Lord of your life. But this passage is saying, that's not the king you need. The kingship of Jesus disturbs our hearts. This is the first thing we we learn. And Christian, I want to encourage you, if you will allow it, the disturbance you feel in your heart can lead you to genuine confession and repentance. 
it can lead you to realign yourself with King Jesus. And Christian, and if you're not a Christian, rather, it can do the same. Look, you can, you can respond to this reality in one of two ways. This claim that Jesus is the king of your life. You can either respond like Herod and get upset. Or you can ask for the Lord's help to change your heart. And put your trust in him. But then second, I want to suggest that we learn from this passage that the kingship of Jesus derives itself from God. Look here beginning in verse 4. So the king's heart was troubled, and then verse 4, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ, right, the Messiah, the long-anointed one, where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. The kingship of Jesus disturbs our hearts and it derives itself from God. Uh, during the 2001 baseball season, the Chicago White Sox they held a Cancer Survivors Night at Comiskey Park. And before the game, White Sox player Jose Canseco, how many of you remember Jose Canseco? Yeah, okay, yeah, Jose Canseco. He was with the White Sox at the time. He spoke with several of the 450 cancer patients, many of whom were, were little kids. So he meets with them before the game, and you know what he tells the cancer survivors at the game? Before the game starts, he says, look, I'm going to hit two home runs for you in tonight's game. The White Sox won that game 7-6. to six. They played against the Kansas City Royals. And Jose Canseco, true to his word, his first two at-bats, he hit two home runs. And when he came to the plate the third time, you know what the crowd did? They gave him a standing ovation. And rightfully so, amen? Right? Do we not applaud when we hear of someone making good on their promise? Especially when that promise seems almost too hard to believe? I mean, Jose Canseco said, I'm going to hit two dingers for you. First two at bats. One to center, one to left. And then he gets a standing ovation, and rightfully so. Faith Christmas ought to make us give God a standing ovation. That is, the birth of Christ ought to make us, his people, praise him 
For you know why? For far greater and harder than hitting two home runs and the sending of the Lord Jesus Christ, God has made good on His Word. You see, faith, this text reminds us, please hear me, that God does what He says, the way He says, how He says, and even where He says. And what God has clearly said is that the kingship of Jesus was His idea. Exalting Jesus, the Son of God, as the supreme king was God the Father's idea, and He, as this text testifies, has brought it to pass. Notice how the passage I just read in Matthew is rich in the fulfillment of God's promises. Right, We're told in verse 6 that the Messiah will be born in the city of David. Back in Micah 5.2, God promised that the long-awaited Savior, the King of Kings, would come from Bethlehem, the city of David. And in the birth of Jesus, God keeps His word. As one commentator I read this week said, Matthew puts the promise-keeping nature of our God front and center in this passage. And I want to suggest that there's an important application for us in this part of Matthew. You know what that is? It's this, Christian. It's you. It's this for everyone. Friend, please hear me. You can trust God. He keeps His promises. And you can trust Him and believe Him even when, please hear me, your feelings tell you otherwise. Christmas reminds us that God keeps his word. Amen? Uh, Johnny Erickson Tata is a quadriplegic uh, who also suffers with chronic pain. This is actually very rare for a quadriplegic to actually suffer with chronic pain. Also, she has breast cancer. And several years ago, she shared how she often wakes up most mornings feeling terrible. She will have some kind of discomfort. However, because she's a quadriplegic, there's nothing else she can do until the woman who cares for her comes into her room at 7.30 in the morning. So it's not uncommon for her to lay awake in the morning for great discomfort for a long period of time before someone can come and tend to her. Now just imagine that for a moment. In those moments, she confessed that she can be tempted to believe and trust her feelings more than the Word of God. You know what she can be tempted to think as she's lying there in pain, unable to move, unable to do anything, as she waits perhaps even hours at a time for someone to come? She can be tempted to think, God doesn't care for me. God doesn't love me. God's not attentive to what's going on in my life. She can also be tempted to give way to self-pity. Woe is me. She can feel hopeless. So you know what Johnny Erickson Tata does in those moments? She sings. She sings God-exalting, Bible-saturated hymns, and she sings loudly 
And you know why she does that? As she mentioned in the interview, she sings those hymns because she wants God's truth to dictate her her behavior and her feelings and not have her feelings dictate her behavior. She understands that God's promises are what's trustworthy, not her fickle feelings. She wants to trust God's word. So she sings to remind herself of these truths. In faith, we can do the same. We can sing knowing that God's promises are true because of Christmas. Christmas reminds us God is faithful to deliver. You know, uh, I'm still waiting on packages. Anyone else? Yes? Weather doesn't stop God's promises. He delivers on time and in the way that he says. We can trust him. His word is sure. Yet there's something else that this text confirms that the kingship of Jesus derives itself from God, and that is the star. Dun, dun, dun. Okay. Is it not true that frequently the Bible baffles our curiosity about how certain things happen? I mean, I don't know about you, but I read over this passage this week several times. I had a bunch of questions, like, how did the star get the Magi from the east of Jerusalem? Or how did the star go before them in the little five-mile walk from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, as verse 9 says it did? Or how did the star stand over the place where Jesus was born? And you know what the answer is? We don't know. <laughs> now, there's numerous efforts to explain it in terms of conjunctions and planets and all that kind of stuff. But the truth is we just don't know. Because God in his wisdom has chosen not to reveal those answers, all those answers, to us. But friend, this is what is plain. What is plain concerning the star is that it's doing something it cannot do on its own. It's guiding the Magi to the Son of God to worship him. And as one commentator mentioned this week, uh, so he hit on the head, he says, there's only one person in biblical thinking that can be behind that intentionality in the stars, and that's God himself. So the lesson is plain. Please hear me. God is guiding foreigners to Christ to worship him. And he's doing it by exerting global, indeed even universal influence and power to get it done. Consider this. God wields the universe, the stars, to make his son Jesus Christ known and worshipped. This is God's great goal in all things, that his son would be known and worshipped. But please hear me. What we see here in Matthew 2 is not the only time, nor is it the last time, that God has sovereignly orchestrated events to get people to know and worship Jesus. Friend, I want to tell you that God is still sovereignly directing events and circumstances so that all people would know and worship Christ. In fact, he might even be sovereignly directing the circumstances of your life to get your attention so that you would know and worship the Lord Jesus Christ. 
In fact, consider for a moment what's going on in your life right now. Could it be, friend, that God is orchestrating the universe of your life to get your attention so that you might worship Jesus? Please know, it's not, it's not by accident that you're here this morning. God used a star to lead foreigners to worship Christ. Is he likewise using the circumstances in your life to bring you to a place where just like the Magi, you will bow the knee and worship him as your Savior and Lord? Is God chipping away at your life? It, has, the, has it felt like the rugs been pulled out from underneath you? Chipping away at your life to see that you're hopeless without him? Has there been hard, some hard circumstance that God is pressing upon you so that you can see this idea of living for myself, it's a dead-end street? Have you had some relational struggles? some job struggles, some health struggles. Friends, God orchestrated the cosmos to give the Magi to Jesus. Could he be orchestrating the cosmos in your life to get you to a place to see you're a sinner in need of a Savior? Indeed, have you come to the place to realize that your lack of attention and devotion to God, that your choice to put other things before God as the most important thing in your life, have you seen that for what it really is, sinful rebellion against God? Friend, if so, let today be the day of salvation for you. What, what a better way to remember this Christmas morning than by you putting your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. The babe born in a manger lived the sinless life you failed to live. He absorbed the debt you were owed for your sin on your cross, on a cross, and then he rose from the grave three days later. And as the angels say in Luke chapter 2, this is great, noise, great news for all people. Friend, throw yourself at the mercy and grace of Christ. Trust him. Because you can't ruin, rule your life. I'm sorry, you can ruin your life but you are not fit to rule your life. Jesus is the king you need. And then next, do what we see the Magi doing. And this is the third thing we learn, that the kingship of Jesus demands our worship. Look again at verses 11 and 12. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, and being warmed in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. If Jesus is in fact God in flesh, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, then you can't just like him. And the Bible, the people who actually meet Jesus and encounter Jesus, they are never indifferent towards them or treat him mildly. Once they realize what he was claiming about himself, 
they were either furious with him, like Herod, or they knelt down before him and worshipped him. But nobody, nobody just simply likes Jesus. No one says, yeah, you know, Jesus, he was an inspiring guy. He, he helps me live a better life. No one said that in Scripture. If, if Jesus is the King of Kings, then you must serve and worship him completely. So what does it look like to worship Jesus? Well, I think the Magi show us. Worshiping Jesus means joyfully ascribing authority to Christ with sacrificial gifts. It means ascribing authority to Christ with sacrificial gifts. And this is exactly what the Magi are doing, is it not? To worship Christ means to place Jesus as your greatest treasure. You know, uh, this week, I was really been meditating and thinking upon the effort, the effort that the Magi must have exerted in order to get to Christ so they could worship him. I mean, think about not only their travel, but their diligence in seeking to know where he was born and asking those who knew. And then when they get to Jesus, who at this time was probably two years old, when they finally get to him, they ascribe to him, think about a, a two-year-old, authority by falling on the ground and worshiping him. They present a two-year-old treasures of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And what is so compelling, I would say at the same time so convicting, is that typically we do the exact opposite at this time of year. That is, instead of going to great lengths to pursue and worship Christ, we can get caught up in the pursuit of material things. And the great irony of Christmas in our context is that while Christmas is to be a time when we deepen our worship and adoration of Christ, oftentimes we tend to deepen our worship and adoration of gifts, placing our treasures above Christ. So one practical way we can reverse this trend, and I want to encourage you to do that today, is by refusing to make Christmas about you. I love what author and pastor Heath Lambert said. He put it like this. He says, don't make Christmas about you. Don't make it about your memories and what you want and what or who you don't have. Christmas is too big and too important to reduce it to you. Make Christmas about Jesus Christ. Make it about the day that God kept his promise and sent a Savior who was for all the people. Because, friend, as far as the Magi traveled to worship Jesus, they are not the ones who traveled the furthest in this text. No, you know who traveled even a greater length than them? Jesus. Consider the length the Son of God traveled to be born in a manger. Jesus Christ left his Father's throne in heaven to come to earth, to take on human flesh, to be born in a stable, and then to die on the cross in order to save all who would trust in him. When you consider such a great love from such a great Savior, 
you will want to make Christmas about Jesus and not yourself. And you know what, friend? By your very presence here this morning, you have already chosen to do that. But don't let it stop here this morning. Today, as we leave here in a few moments to go to our homes, enjoy good food, perhaps gifts and fellowship with others, I would encourage you to make central and to consider and continue to ponder the good gift that God has given you in Jesus Christ. Faith, faith, we need Christmas. We need a light to dispel the darkness of our hearts. We need a peace to calm our troubled souls. And we need a king to rule and reign over us in love and justice. And the good news of Christmas is that God the Father has given us all these things through His Son, Jesus Christ. Let loving hearts enthrone Him. Amen? Let's pray.